Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Reid. I'm a naturopathic doctor, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Gary Kaplan. Uh, Dr. Kaplan is a DO in the beautiful state of Virginia, and uh, Dr. Kaplan, thank you for joining me, and would you mind just uh, saying a few words about yourself and how you got involved with working with folks suffering from complex chronic illness? Brian, thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, my my specialties uh, are in family medicine and pain medicine. And um, mostly what we ended up treating now is people with chronic uh, illness. So we see people who are struggling with chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic pain syndromes, chronic depression, chronic uh, problems with post-COVID uh, and uh, post-Lyme syndrome. Uh, because it turns out all of these things have one thing in common. They're all symptoms of a brain on fire, of inflammation in the brain. And so most of my work has centered around, uh, I originally did some research back in the early uh, 2000s with a bunch of colleagues from Georgetown. I teach at Georgetown. Uh, and we were beginning to wonder what was going on. My academy, American Academy of Pain Medicine said, you know, it'd be a spiffy idea if we started using opioids uh, for treating uh, benign pain syndromes. Well, I don't know how much you follow what goes on in the States, but that turned out to be a profoundly bad idea. And one of the things we were seeing early on was we were watching our patients seesaw back and forth between depression, anxiety, and chronic pain. And as we treated one, we got the other. And, and, and so what was the commonality there? And so that started a bunch of research that I did with colleagues from NIH and Georgetown. And uh, what we found was a that there was inflammation in the brain and specifically what we focused on what so there's two great big pieces that cause inflammation in the brain uh one is the innate immune system uh and we focused on looking at the innate immune system those are your first responders those are the guys that show up on the emergency they they put out the fire they quiet everything down then they call on the repair crews and they leave the next crew is the acquired immune system so what happened was I wrote a book called Total Recovery, outlining this entire model of, of chronic pain and depression uh, as a neuroinflammatory process, because we focus on symptoms, right? So what does inflammation in the brain look like? It looks like fatigue. It looks like pain, generalized pain throughout. It can look like headaches. Uh, it can look like difficulty, focus, and concentration. It looks like fatigue that can be crushing and overwhelming to you. All right, so there's a whole series of things that we have labeled as these diseases, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, which in fact are really nothing more than variations of a theme on neuroinflammatory disease. Now, why is that important? That's important because depression and fibromyalgia are names that do not inform me as to what I should be doing to make you better. Whereas if I understand that the problem ultimately is about inflammation of the brain and what things are causing that inflammation, well, then I've got some targets to go after. And so in the microglia, we were looking at, okay, what causes microglia, which is the innate immune system in the central nervous system? What causes microglia to start becoming activated? The answer to that question is trauma, both physical trauma in terms of concussions, but also psychological trauma. And indeed, we find that if we look at kids uh, or people who have been subject to abuse in childhood, 
we find them at a 15% higher risk overall than the general population for developing uh, autoimmune disease and a 20, 25% overall increased risk from the general population developing heart disease, obesity, diabetes. So this business of psychological trauma is extremely important and needs to be addressed. The other thing, and, and by the way, when we did this, the other thing became, okay, look, wait, if we're going to be talking about inflammation, we need to talk about the whole person. It's no longer about here, take this pill, make this better. It's about understanding how the person arrived at where they are today. So one of the ways I begin my history with people is, when was the last time you were in excellent health? And the very first thing all of my patients do is they lie to me. <laughs> I was last in excellent health back in 2016 before I got this tick bite. Fine. Now I take the rest of the history. Any history of migraines? Oh, yeah, I've had migraines since I was 13. Really? Okay. And any problems uh, with your digestive tract? Oh, yeah, I, I was constipated constantly as a kid, and uh, now I have irritable bile syndrome. And an evolving story that starts to come out that there's been lots of things going on with this individual. And then, of course, they're the ones who are, well, what was it like growing up at home? Oh, mom and dad divorced when I was eight. Uh, uh, both of them essentially abandoned me at that point in time. Mom was a narcissist. And okay, now we're off to the races with a whole other piece of information. So what we found was it was no longer enough to treat the symptom, but we had to treat the totality of the person with the symptom. And we had to understand that there were a whole series of things that led up to this ultimately inflammatory process in their, in their brain. And what happens is, so the second book I wrote, which was uh, Why You're Still Sick, how, inf how Infections Break Our Immune System, the process is really that we've come to understand is first you got genetics, right? You're at risk, but you don't necessarily express those genetics. The example I like to use is celiac disease. 35% of the population is at genetic risk for developing celiac disease. But only 3% of that population will ever express, meaning they'll ever actually have celiac. So 3% of the 35% at risk. Why? Well, there's this thing called epigenetics. That is how the environment has turned on or off certain of our genes. And so the epigenetic stuff is emotional trauma, physical trauma, is poisonings from the environment by air pollution or heavy metals or mold toxicity, stuff you all are well familiar with and have talked about at length. But this is all the stuff that begins to weaken the system and creates problems, all right? Diet, what's going on in terms of your gut microbiome and the healthier gut microbiome beginning to set you up. Then what happens is an infection comes along, maybe strep, okay, which is what the classic in pandas, right? Pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome from strep, all right? So what's happened at this point is that the infection now comes along and you have a weakened system because of all these prior toxins and everything else that's going on. Now the infection comes, the next thing you know, your immune system overreacts. And it's the acquired piece of the immune system. The acquired piece of the immune system is that which builds antibodies. So if I give you an immunization of COVID, those are the antibodies you're building so that you won't get COVID, or at least you'll get a only a mild case of it. So what happens then is because the whole system is a bit weakened and shaky, now what happens, the infection comes along and your immune system way overreacts. And when it way overreacts, what happens is, yeah, it goes after the bug that it's supposed to kill, which is good. 
but it also gets confused. And it looks at our own tissue, specifically our brain tissue, our neuro tissue, and it says, you know what? The proteins there look really similar to the ones on the bug. So I think that's the bug too. I'll go after that. And the next thing you know, you are making antibodies to your own brain. And now your brain's completely lit. So the mistake we've made in the past is if the infection didn't cause a direct encephalopathy, a direct infection of the brain from it, we figured you were fine. In fact, that's not the case because most of these infections don't create a direct infection of the brain itself, but rather the brain is a bystander that gets injured as a result of the immune system becoming overreactive as it tries to fight these infections. And so now you've got a problem. And indeed, that's what was killing people in COVID. What killed people in COVID was not COVID itself, but the reaction of the immune system trying to fight off COVID way out of line it attacked the lungs it attacked the brain it attacked the heart and that did more damage than anything else so we're in a situation now where we have a completely new understanding of all of these diseases and as such a completely new way to go about treating them and helping find solutions for people that is more comprehensive and hopefully gets them restored to total health which is the goal here we had talked briefly about a conference that I was chairing last or a year ago, uh, which was on autoimmune encephalopathy infectious etiology. Okay, I have been yelled at for saying that phrase because it's kind of scary. What on earth does all all that mean? What it means simply is we're looking. We were looking at the things that set off the infections, the cause, set off the immune system from the what infections were doing that that subsequently ended up causing inflammation in the brain. And it turns out that there's a whole range of infections that can do that, Lyme disease. But Lyme disease, you have to be careful, right? Because Lyme disease isn't just Lyme disease. Lyme is the whole array of bugs that have been carried by ticks. So it can, so Lyme Borrelia, and by the way, there's eight subspecies of Lyme Borrelia. So if you've tested for the wrong species, you may have missed the fact that you had Miyamoto, right? Or one of the other sub, uh, subfamilies of, of, of Borrelia. But you also can have Babesia, which is a parasite that can be transmitted by the ticks, and the second most common co-infection to occur uh, with Lyme disease. You can have Bartonella. Bartonella can be transferred by ticks, by fleas, by lice, and Bartonella can create a whole series of neurologic problems that can be incredibly devastating. And I would say probably about 10% of our patients are infected with all three of those bugs. You can also see bugs like anaplasma and ehrlichia. You can have other rickettsial type fevers like tick-borne relapsing fever and uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So there's lots of different bugs and not just Lyme that can be coming out of the, out of the tick-borne infections. Then there's strep. Then there's mycoplasma pneumonia, there's toxoplasmosis, which can be transmitted most commonly from cats, okay? And so there's a whole array of different infections that can potentially, that we need to test for and look to see if they're at play. We can see reactivation of Epstein-Barr. So Epstein-Barr is a really interesting bug. Epstein-Barr is a member of the herpes family. And Epstein-Barr can be... Uh, you get it as mono, right? So mono is what we get. And in fact, 95% of the population has had mono. No big deal. The bug, we get it. We made varying levels of sickness with it, but uh, we end up uh, recovering from it and go on with life. 
except that sometimes when the immune system gets weakened, the Epstein-Barr stays in your system. And so what can happen is the immune system keeps it in check and prevents it from reemerging. If the immune system gets weakened, that bug may pop out again. And the next thing you know is you have antibodies being produced again to Epstein-Barr. And so now that becomes a chronic infection sitting inside you as well. So all these things have to be checked for and evaluated in terms of doing a really comprehensive, thorough evaluation on somebody. And then there's another factor which gets even more confusing here, but what we're trying to make sense out of. One of those factors is the fact that it may not be a replicating bug that's creating our problem anymore. So it may be that the immune system is still reacting, but it's not reacting to strep or it's not reacting to COVID because COVID is really the best model here. What it's reacting to is a piece of the COVID virus. In this case, the spike protein, which is still in the system. We have not to date really shown any live COVID organisms still going on in people who have post-COVID syndrome, but we sure have found the spike protein in a number of those people. And the spike protein continues to annoy the immune system and get the immune system to keep reacting to it. So even though we don't culture out a given bug, you may have a piece of that bug that's still in play aggravating the immune system. So you have to think in very broad categories and very comprehensive categories as we're evaluating these individuals who are suffering with this so that we can get a much more complete answer in terms of doing this. And then we've got the conference coming up in November, which is new developments in understanding chronic illness, the role of immune dysfunction and infections. That conference will be November 8, 9, 10. We have an all-star faculty. Again, we have people from NIH. We have people from Stanford. We have people from Georgetown, uh, from Columbia uh, College of Physicians. Uh, and so we've pulled together some of the best and brightest research in the country to talk about this stuff from Hopkins. We've got people coming from England. So I'm extremely excited about this because this is a chance to have a lot of cross-fertilization uh, of some of our best and our brightest researchers and clinicians able to talk about all of these different diseases, which typically get pigeonholed and separated from each other. But now we're going, wait a minute, we have this in common and this in common and this in common. Maybe we can work together and come up with better solutions. So we'll be talking about chronic fatigue syndrome. We'll be talking about fibromyalgia and chronic pain. We'll be talking about PANS, PANDAS. We'll be talking about chronic depression, Chronic depression is a neuroinflammatory disease. And I just pulled up an article this morning uh, from Lancet uh, that looked at cumulative onset risk of mental disorders across national analysis of populations. And the answer was 75%, 75% of people will have developed a mental illness sometime in their lifetime. Wow. And it gets worse as you get older. Why? Because you accumulate more inflammation and neuro and Mental illness, okay, in the form of depression, anxiety disorders, bipolar disorders, or neuroinflammatory diseases. So as we've come with this whole new concept of thinking of these things as inflammation of the brain and understand the mechanisms by which that gets there, brand new history, brand new sets of solutions for people, and a much better opportunity uh, to get people fully recovered. So it's not just enough to go after the epigenetic stuff, which is important. You have to go after it. It's not just enough to go after the bugs, 
But now you got to go after the immune system and work on settling that down as well. And so that's a more comprehensive view of looking at this stuff, but it gives us a lot more opportunities to get you better. That's a wonderful explanation, Dr. Kaplan. And if, if I may say just a, a few quick things and in, in, uh, comment um, to what you just said or in reply. Um, <clears throat> so one is that uh, folks, if you just finished listening to that and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm drinking out of a fire hose here. It, it is, um, I, I would strongly encourage you, if you or someone you love or care about is suffering from complex chronic illness, go back and listen to that again. Because, um, you know, my my brain, which is racing a little bit hearing all of that, and I'm steeped in this, you know, 24-7, um, it's it is a very very succinct believe it or not it was it was a lot but that was a very succinct um uh description of, of really 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 important pathophysiological concepts and like linking all those things together so that's it's a, it's a beautiful description uh one other thing i'll quickly mention is um some of the concepts that uh, you mentioned there dr kaplan um, are concepts that you know kind of in the naturopathic world functional medicine world you know these are concepts that we've kind of like seen these patterns in in practice over the years um and uh but one of the things i was really excited about when i attended the um autoimmune encephalitis conference i mean virtually because trying to get away from my three kids and busy practice just love to be there in person but thank goodness for recordings i can send so much more ce that way um what was really fascinating was like wow like these patterns and uh, things that i've seen in practice like there's all this research evidence behind it so like everything that you said dr cap i know you know this but i'm just saying for um audience uh, listening whether you're a clinician whether you're, you're a non-clinician a patient what have you um everything that dr kaplan's saying as he alluded to like it's all steeped in the research evidence this isn't just like oh piecing things together and you know if that's all you've got that's all you've got but this is all steeped in the research evidence so it's very very exciting um, i can't wait for the conference coming up later this year uh, to see what else is coming out because i attend a lot of conferences i am a conference junkie i love it um but the autoimmune encephalitis conference i was like wow like i learned a lot more stuff there like it, it was it was Thank you. wonderful value for my for my money uh really excited about the next one so if you're a clinician thinking about attending please strongly consider doing so there is a virtual option again this year although i'd love to visit washington dc that's where it is this year but uh so so thank you so much for that i'm um, dr clapin um i have about a dozen questions that i was jotting down uh, based on what you said um but uh um i i can dive into those now or if there's anything else you wanted to say first uh we can go wherever you want from here but I just want to make one other comment on the conference, which you very generously talked about. The, um, the conference is open both to the public as well as clinicians and uh, researchers. Uh, everybody who's not a clinician or researcher is welcome to attend virtually, uh, and there's a sign-up for them. And we want the whole, the foundation, okay, the Foundation for Total Recovery, which is one of the main sponsors of this, is a foundation I created after I wrote my first book, and I took much of the proceeds from that book to see the foundation. And it's an education and research foundation, the 5013C nonprofit in the States. And it's putting on these conferences because we want this information out to everybody to the, educate my colleagues uh, first and foremost, but we also want the public to be acutely uh, educated about all of this stuff. So they're on the edge so that they can talk to their practitioners intelligently and so that they can ask the right questions and get the right care that they deserve. And so we really want everybody to come to this. This is about total transparency. We want you to have access to this stuff. We ask that, so the public is attending virtually because when with the docs in the room, we want to be able to have a little bit different conversation amongst ourselves that'll allow for more cross-fertilization for shop work, if you will, between researchers. Um, 
but uh, we do want you to have this information and I hope that you'll uh, consider attending virtually. Great. Yeah. And, and I was meaning to mention that too, uh, but yeah, I thank you for mentioning that Dr. Kaplan and, uh, and just to say like price point wise, um, it, it is quite a lot less uh, expensive for um, the general public to attend just, just to say as well. Um, so uh, just a couple of, well, several follow-up questions here. We'll see what we have time to get into here. I'll try to prioritize, um, <clears throat> but uh, let me see here. I guess uh, one of the things that I know I, I struggle with um, a bit, I mean, in terms of addressing underlying root cause factors, which is no, you know, walk in the park by any stretch, but I mean, we have sure. access to a lot of great tools to kind of go after the root cause factors, getting, you know, remediating a person's home for if there's mold exposure, getting rid of flushing mycotoxins out killing off micros with antimicrobials, using different immunomodulating therapies, chelation therapy, getting rid of toxins, whatever it happens to be, all the root cause stuff, super important. One of the areas that I feel that I wish we had more, I'll say reliable tools with, and I'm hoping you have some reliable ones you can share with me uh, and the listeners, um, bearing in mind, of course, that nothing we're saying should be construed as medical advice. This is all for informational purposes only. If you need medical advice, please ask your healthcare provider for that advice. Um, but one of the things that I find have inconsistent results with, whether it's you know pharmaceutical options or non-pharmaceutical options is having just like some good old um, physiological fire extinguishers just to like put out that neuroinflammation to try to dampen down the flames while we're working on um, again the immunomodulation getting rid of those root cause factors and I'm just uh, you know sometimes some patients do really well with um, you know quercetin or they'll do really well with um, PEA or they'll do really well with just good old like you know ibuprofen um, dosed appropriately or antihistamines or whatnot but I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing some of your kind of top go-to's or some of the things that uh, the agents you find to be the most effective um, in helping to try to dampen down those fires to give these poor patients some relief while we're, you know, plugging away at the root cause factors? Excellent question and very important. So let's start with the first basics, which is sleep. Sleep is one of the most neglected things because we don't take a decent sleep history. So what time do you go to sleep? How long does it take you to fall asleep? Do you wake up multiple times during the night? Are you refreshed when you get up in the morning or are you exhausted? Do you snore? So I encourage people to go online and find Epworth, E-P-W-R-T-H, Epworth scale. Okay, it's a free, it'll take you two minutes to go through it. And if you're scoring nine or above, you need to talk to your doctor about the possibility you have sleep apnea. So it's a real easy test, done at home, no efforts about it, but you have nine, bring it into your doc and say, I have a nine score or 10 score or 11 score on the Epworth. Um, is it possible I have sleep apnea? Sleep apnea is where you stop breathing at night. 5% of the population has it. 85% of the population who has it doesn't know it. And it is a constant, it's a loss of oxygen to the brain. That in and of itself will set off inflammation in the central nervous system. If it disrupts your sleep so that you're not getting good stage three, four sleep, slow wave sleep, you're going to have serious problems with detoxifying your brain. And you're going to have serious problems with chronic pain. If I put you in a sleep lab and I wake you up looking at EEGs every time you go into stage three, four sleep, you're going to have chronic pain at the end of a week. So I want you to sleep. How am I going to get you to sleep? I can get you to sleep melatonin potentially anywhere. And melatonin is a nice antioxidant, the central nervous system. So I can also use magnesium. And I tend to use magnesium taurate because that crosses the blood-brain barrier nicely and it doesn't irritate the gut as magnesium glycinate uh, will uh, and or citrate, which will cause more uh, bowel uh, movements, diarrhea. So magnesium taurate I can use at a higher dose and I can use melatonin as nice ways to kind of 
quiet down the central nervous system and also help get you your sleep and get restorative sleep as well. Taurine is another thing that you can use in order to help uh, get a better night's sleep uh, and fall asleep faster. So using those kind of things. Using uh, curcumin, turmeric is very effective in terms of reducing inflammation in general in the brain. Using things like PEA that you talked about, PEA is specific in terms of the relationship between mast cells and microglia, and it helps stabilize the mast cells. So we're looking at PEA more in a situation where there may be a mast cell activation type syndrome uh, as the uh, another part of the innate immune system that's overreactive. But PEA, luteal, uh, become things that are very uh, effective in terms of quieting that down, as are over-the-counter antihistamines, including uh, things like pepsin, which is a type of antihistamine, right? Uh, in addition to the stuff that takes care of the stuffy nose, stuff like Claritin, Ligra, whatever. So using those things. One of the other things I like to use is uh, low-dose naltrexone, but that's by a prescription. Low-dose naltrexone specifically quiets down the microglia, the central nervous, the innate side of things. Now, naltrexone is used for drug overdoses. It's used for uh, helping alcoholics stay sober. Uh, but in low doses, like 1.25 to 4.25 milligrams, so that has to be compounded in addition to being prescribed by your physician, uh, it has it will actually do a very nice job of reducing inflammation in the central nervous system. So using low-dose naltrexone. Another pharmaceutical I like in terms of reducing uh, inflammation is lithium. Lithium actually is a nice stabilizer of neuronal activity, but it's also an anti-inflammatory in the lower doses. So lithium orotate you could use uh, would be one way to do it. I tend to use lithium carbonate, which is by prescription, but you can use the orotate as a uh, over-the-counter. Uh, but the, uh, so 150 to 300 milligrams of the lithium uh, carbonate. Uh, magnificent job in terms of quieting down that inflammation, but getting people to sleep is really, really important. Uh, and so that's one activity. Another thing that will help reduce inflammation in the brain is exercise, aerobic exercise and anaerobic exercise, weights. Again, the mantra with all of my patients is pacing, not pushing. I don't want you crashing because if you're crashing, your brain is getting more inflamed. And examples of things which can be too extraneous for you, reading. Your average chess master, okay, on a tournament, four hours on a, a, chess a chess tournament, how many calories does he burn sitting there? Uh, a lot of calories, given the brain uses a lot of ATP. 5,000. <laughs> that much, eh? <laughs> That's a lot. 5,000. One of my patients told me that because her son is a chess master, and I didn't believe it, so I went to look at I looked it up, and sure enough, Four to 5,000 calories just sitting there because the concentrating and focus because the brain is the most metabolically active organ in the body. So reading can exhaust you. And so again, something else you may want to pace and make sure. I had one kid when I started working with him, uh, his brain was so inflamed. If he read for 10 minutes, he'd be crashed for the rest of the day. We had him reading five minutes with enforced half hour breaks. If we're able to do that over time, we slowly built him back up. He'll be graduating Baylor next year. So, you know, if you want to not crash, so we want to make sure that we're pacing things and keeping you going. 
nutrition is like key to everything, right? So if your gut is inflamed, if you're having problems where you're there, the, the gut microbiome is not only disrupted, but that the gut wall is disrupted so that you're now allowing large molecules to move from the inside of the gut to the blood. Body doesn't like that. And suddenly you find yourself allergic to a whole bunch of foods because when large molecules move across that mucosal barrier in the gut into the bloodstream, the body says, I don't like large molecules. And so it attacks it, creates an antibody to it. So now all of a sudden you're allergic to not four foods, you're allergic to 40 foods. So when you see that, you have to step back and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. What am I doing here? And then what do we need to do to replenish the gut? Certainly using probiotics and uh, prebiotics. There's a whole range of things that we can use in order to help settle the gut. But you also want to take a look and see whether or not you've got yeast overgrowth or bacterial overgrowth. Certainly if we see overgrowth of clostridia, clostridia we think of in terms of causing diarrhea as an exotoxin, but it's also an endotoxin. And so what happens is an endotoxin, it will produce things like forcreosol or HPHPA, which are neurotoxins. Those get in the blood, they enter, they cross the blood-brain barrier, and they will poison the brain. So we want to do things to make sure that the gut is healthy and do proper testing on the gut. And those tests, uh, many of them can be ordered without the need of a, a physician, though interpreting them typically requires one. But we want to fix the gut microbiome is very key to what we're doing. And one of the ways I start off with people is simple, hypoallergenic diet. Rice, fish, chicken, fresh fruits, vegetables, everything organic. End discussion. If it ain't on that list, it ain't on your diet. And you do that for a month. The two problems I run into is for the first week, everybody's bitching, what do I eat? And for the last week, they're going, well, I feel better. Now what do I do? So we... We, you know, we work. We have a nutritionist uh, on our staff, and so we work with people in order to design diets that make sense uh, for them. So that's kind of a way to start with this stuff. There's a lot more that you can do, but uh, without overwhelming you, that's a place to start. What I did in Why You Are Still Sick, the most recent book I published, I pretty much handed over everything we're doing to everybody. Here are the companies we use. Here's the testing we do. Here's why we do the testing. And here are the references for all this stuff. We ended up putting only 400 references uh, in the book. There were well over 1,000 in the process of writing the book. But it's a lot of printing and a lot of pages for 1,000 references. So we, we trimmed it down to the more important ones. But there is a resource in terms of helping you take charge of your health and understand the testing and the supplements and the whole process of allowing yourself to return to health. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, yep. More questions from what you just said, in addition to the other <laughs> questions from what you said earlier, but uh, just a couple of maybe quick uh, rapid fire ones here, if you don't mind. Um, one, uh, and actually this is just a little side note, just for uh, Canadian listeners. Um, uh, unfortunately for us, we don't have any over-the-counter lithium here that can be accessed. It's all just prescription only. So just FYI, if you're like, I'm going to run to the corner store and grab some of that, uh, you're in the wrong country for that if you're in Canada. Uh, U.S. of course is different. Uh, lucky, lucky for those folks. Um, the one. Well, I'll tell you, the lithium take comes from manufacturer Canada. <laughs> Does it really? Well, yeah. I never said it made sense, but uh, that's just that's the reality of it. On More the ground, here. good to know. More here. Um, 
Yeah, there's there's one of uh, I think one of the most uh, uh, well known companies that makes the um, Baloke or Baloki, however you pronounce it, the earthworm uh, enzyme extract um, is a Canadian company, but we're they're not allowed to sell as a Canadian. So for Canadians to get it, they have to purchase it. Their doctor here in Canada has to send it a referral to a company in the states, and they have to ship it. It's like just anyways defies logic. Um, one of my questions for you, Dr. Kaplan is, um, just, you mentioned magnesium taurate being one of like your mm -hmm. kind of go-to magnesium when you're wanting to cross the blood, blood brain barrier. I'm just wondering how that stacks up pound for pound versus magnesium three and eight, because I know a lot of folks will take the three and eight form for that. Uh, oh, I think magnesium theanate is, is relatively interchangeable with that. Okay. So you can certainly use the magnesium theanate. Neither of those are going to cause, uh, the gut to get overstimulated, which is one of the living factors in how much magnesium you can get. And by the way, most people are magnesium deficient. The other thing most people are is vitamin D deficient. Mm. Vitamin D is a hormone. Vitamin D is crucial for the normal functioning of the immune system. Vitamin D plays so many roles in the body, it would take us an entire program just to discuss that. Simple thing that should be part of every single exam, not every year, but at least yearly, this is what your vitamin D level. Hmm. And if your vitamin D level is below 30 nanograms per deciliter, I'm not sure what the low, it should be about the same in Canada. But if your vitamin D level is below 75 in Canadian units. But if you're below that, you are really deficient because at that, you're just barely over the line. From our standpoint, where you belong is somewhere between 50 to 80 nanograms per deciliter. Um, for a normal value, for an optimal functioning uh, immune system. So vitamin D, easy to check and easy to fix because you can take over-the-counter supplements for that also. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, one of the other uh, questions I had, you mentioned about melatonin, and I mean, that's one of my go-tos as well. And I know for a lot of my patients, they seem to need like higher dosages. A lot of patients are, and some clinicians are surprised to hear there's human clinical trials, you know, going up to, you know, all, many at 20 milligrams uh, per night, just in oncology trials, but, you know, 30, 40 milligrams, I think I've heard rumors of even higher. So just, just as a point of interest uh, for, for listeners um, with melatonin, I found it's generally well tolerated. I, I always titrate it up just to be on the safe side. Cause I find some patients just need to build it up or else they have a reaction to it. But I have some patients where even like, you know, half a milligram or a quarter of a milligram before bed, they have a flare up. And, and yet, interestingly enough, if we painstakingly build it up, they're, they're eventually able to tolerate more robust dosages. And my, my theory around that has always been, oh, the brain's already so inflamed that maybe it's kind of pushing it down into, you know, say where melatonin is, is just for listeners, sake of listeners, it uh, can interconvert with serotonin. That serotonin could get broken down eventually into this stuff called quinolinic acid, which is neuroexcitatory, neurotoxic. So that's kind of been my prevailing theory as to why some folks don't tolerate it. So I always approach it a little more cautiously and like the patients who seem quite neuroinflamed. Um, is there another mechanism or do you have other thoughts around that? Or I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts because I that's what I pieced together in my mind, but I'm wondering. What do you think? Your thought is as valid as anyone's. I don't think anybody truly understands. We have, look, the and I've threatened to call this the delicate flower clinic at times because uh, everybody are, is reacting to things that no one else reacted to, six other people reacted to, and no one else passed them. And we have to go with minuscule doses of things and then titrate it up. Uh, I do want to give one warning about melatonin. The studies continue to show that about 75% of melatonin on the shelf isn't what it says it is. It either doesn't have melatonin in it at all, or it has completely different dose. 
per pill that it says it has. So you have to be very careful about the companies that you're buying melatonin from and make sure that they actually have it in what they say they have in it. I, I have no interest, financial interest or anything in things like integrative therapeutics, uh, but they produce a pharmaceutical quality melatonin that, uh, that I rely on. So, but you need to, there are other companies also doing good work. So you just need to make sure that that's going on. Other thing that I just thought of, again, an easy thing to do is fish oil, omega-3s, nice anti-inflammatories in, in the central nervous system, necessary for the central nervous system in order to re repair cells, about a gram and a half a day, uh, and good quality fish oil. Um, and as far as the fish oil goes, like, are you concerned about the EPA DHA uh, DHA ratio or not uh, just any good old? Not so much. Not yet. I haven't found anything that completely convinces me. How about you, Brian? Have you found any any evidence on it? Um, I mean, just based on clinical experience, like sometimes a higher EPA ratio seems to work better for some folks. But yeah, what, as long as it's a good quality one and, you know, that not not a huge difference, but for some, I'm just yeah, curious about your experience. Thank you. Yeah. Um, another thing you mentioned uh, earlier, Dr. Kaplan, was uh, just uh, if, if patients do have a history of psychological trauma, which I would say, and I think as you alluded to, kind of seems to affect a disproportionately high percentage of our patients, especially a lot of the delicate flower patients that we, I think that should be a subtext for my clinic name as well. Hundreds and hundreds of those patients over the years, so I have so much gray hair. Um, but uh, what are some of the, you, you kind of alluded to some tools that you'd recommend for folks um, suffering from a history of psychological trauma. Uh, would you mind just sharing like some of the directions that you point patients in or what you offer for them? So I want to just make one thing very clear. When I talk about delicate flowers, I don't mean that as pejorative. I think that is a reality that we need to acknowledge that everybody's different. Everybody's tolerance levels are different. And we as clinicians need to be sensitive to the fact that we need to adjust our dosing, our medications, our supplements in accordance with being respectful to the needs of these individuals and not just assume, well, you know, uh, you're faking because you, this, you can't tolerate this. That's not the case at all. In fact, these people want to get better. They, they are very sick and their systems are a little bit different than everybody else's systems as we're finding it with the genetics over time. And so we need to be respectful of that and we need to adjust uh what we're doing in order to accommodate to the patients. So I went down that track and I lost your question. The, no, no uh, problem. I, and I couldn't agree with you more. So thank you for clarifying that uh, delicate flower in the nicest possible terms. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and who doesn't love delicate flowers? They're, they're wonderful. Um, so as some tools uh, for folks who are suffering from a history of psychological trauma. Yes. So uh, one is you need to make sure you're working with a clinician who's respectful of you. Okay. Who won't just, you know, doesn't want to hear it, doesn't want to deal with it, first and foremost. Second is, uh, for self-help stuff, things like meditative practices can be very helpful, but even that can be overwhelming for people sometimes. And so finding a good clinician, especially someone who's uh, well-versed in trauma therapy, can be very effective. These are people who understand how to use uh, EMDR, uh, which is a particular technique that can be very helpful uh, for dealing with trauma. Uh, we do a lot of work with uh, work with called body scans with people and help them guide them through uh, processes in order to get in touch with what's going on with them. 
so you need to be ultimately you need to work with somebody who will be respectful of you and do this work with you. Uh, I just had a woman uh, today that I saw who uh, has a fairly significant history of family trauma and lots of neck and shoulder pain and chronic fatigue and uh, history of Lyme disease and on and on and on. And I took a very thorough history on her. We'll do some testing and see what else needs to be addressed. But I did manual therapy on her. I'm also an osteopath. So I still use my osteopathic skills. And so what I did was I did some work on her, uh, her neck and upper back. And when I did so, uh, she broke into tears, just started sobbing. And what the neck is, is metaphorically, the neck is a bridge between the head and the heart. And so what happens is when we have significant conflict, we can try and sever that bridge. The result is lots of neck and shoulder pain and kind of walking around with your shoulders up around your ears. And you don't even realize you've done it, but at the point that you get a release of that muscle tension, all of the emotional stuff starts to reconnect. And so acupuncture can be very helpful in doing this. Manual therapy, a good body worker who knows what they're doing, can be very effective in helping you process and move through this stuff. So finding people who are aware of the mind-body connection and who can help you process all of this work as you go along, it takes a team. You know, within our own center, uh, we have three physicians, but we also have a nurse practitioner. We have an acupuncturist, herbalist. We have uh, a nutritionist. We have a psychotherapist. Okay. And it takes a whole team as well as our nurses and our other support staff in order to be uh, able to be most effective to really handle the totality of the people that, uh, that we're seeing here. So put together your team. How do you put together your team of people who can help you move forward? And, and process this trauma. There's lots of books out on the shelf that, that can help you do that. Um, but I do want you to, to reach out to someone who can, who's an expert in this area and can help you process that because I think that's one of the most effective and important ways to help you. Great. Um, well, Dr. Kaplan, I know our time is kind of starting to dwindle down here a bit. I mentioned before we started recording, I want to go and help my wife put the little ones down. Um, but if you don't mind, I'll just ask you one more question about lab testing, because um, it's such an important question. I know a lot of patients, you know, wonder about lab or you know, folks out there wonder about lab testing. And I think when, you know, the um, one of the underlying uh, key components is neuroinflammation, you know, the the lab testing uh, might be might be a little bit different. Um, so um, as far, or maybe some tests uh, will come up in this conversation folks haven't heard of. So uh, as far as, you know, assessing for brain inflammation, like uh, if, assuming that folks already know about, uh, you know, mycotoxin testing and various options for uh, looking for Borrelia and co-infections and heavy metals and things like that are there. Uh, so kind of outside of those root cause factors, um, are there certain uh, laboratory tests that you recommend for your patients or that you think of for your patients to kind of assess whether there's a neuroinflammatory picture going on or uh, anything you want to say about testing? I'd love to hear about it, but that's kind of the gist of the question. Thanks. So there are two labs in particular uh, that we look at. One is Moleculera, the Cunningham panel, uh, and that gives us uh, an assessment of antibodies to the limbic system, a very particular part of the brain that we don't normally test for. And so that that testing can reveal inflammation uh, in the central nervous system. And so if we find those tests are positive, we know you have uh, limbic encephalopathy going on. The other test is Celltrends. Celltrends is a company in Germany. Uh, Celltrends uh, has done a whole series of antibodies. These are mostly peripheral antibodies. Uh, looking So peripheral antibodies are antibodies to nerve receptors outside of the brain, the spinal cord. 
And so, uh, but they can test for uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. They can test for uh, chronic pain syndrome, fibromyalgia, complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, and so those antibody testing can be extremely uh, helpful in terms of uh, pointing us in the directions of how much we need to do in the immune system. When we get to the immune system, our tools change. So at the point that we get to the immune system, we're looking at things like intravenous immunoglobins in order to treat. We may be looking at things like plasmapheresis or tuximab. So this is a very complex level of treatment at this point, sophisticated level of treatment. And so you need to really work with somebody who truly understands this. On the horizon, one of the things that's really exciting is potentially doing stem cell work in order to help quiet these things down. That's really on the cutting edge of the research uh, arena at this point in time, but it's coming. Uh, and uh, so those are the things you want to look at. Another thing you can look at in the immune system or on the innate side is um, the cutting hand, not the, I'm sorry, the uh, cytokine panels. Cytokines is measuring cytokines in the uh, in the bloodstream, uh, and so uh, that kind of testing can be extremely effective as well. Great. Um, uh, just before we wrap up, uh, Dr. Kaplan, I'd like to just kind of go through some of the resources where folks can access your your books and and you know uh, social media and things like that. Um, but just before we get into that, um, were there any um, parting thoughts or things that you wanted to share that we didn't uh, cover today? The main thing I want people to understand is that there is hope, that you don't have to just live with this, that we're getting better at treating these conditions. We're learning more every day. We're not all the way there yet, but we are so much further ahead than we've ever been. And we now are able to find solutions for people that we have not been able to find just five years ago. And so be hopeful. Keep looking. There is a solution for you. Those are wonderful words. And <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I think uh, groups like the Total Recovery, or sorry, Foundation of Total Recovery, and the the conference that uh, you're, um, yeah, uh, the, it, it, did it start as an annual initiative last year? Is that was that the first uh, in like the audience? No, that was actually the second conference. The first conference was an invitation only at Georgetown, oh, okay. where we pulled together researchers in the field to begin to start talking about this and defining it. Last year's conference was attended by a little over nine hundred people, uh, and we're hoping to see the same kind of not more attendance this year. Wonderful. Well, yeah, so groups groups like yours, uh, you know, just really keeping things on the cutting edge and keeping things as steeped in the research evidence as humanly possible. It's just, yeah, it's just wonderful. So I uh, thank you so much thank for you. all the work you do, Dr. Kaplan. Um, so in terms of uh, resources, uh, if folks want to access more of uh, what you have to offer. So, you know, you mentioned uh, your books, uh, which I'll um, link to those in the show notes for the show, uh, for the podcast episode. I know your uh, website, uh, kaplanclinic.com, um, I believe. Um, so if folks yep. want to work with you or, or your team, then that, that would be the best way to access or to get in touch with you yep. folks, I assume. Um, yeah, in I addition to that, there's a lot of information we put on that website. Lots of interviews we've done, lots of lectures we've done, and that's all available to you for free. And so you should go, nose around, and, uh, and make use of those resources because that's why they're there. And it's user-friendly, no less. I was doing my homework before our chat today. And yeah, you can actually find the stuff on there. Some folks have the most discombobulating website. So anyways, it's it's a user-friendly one, no less. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, I'll put the uh, link to the Foundation for Total Recovery as well for the website there. Uh, the link for the Epworth scale um, uh, online uh, resource there. Anything else that I should post in the show notes or does that cover the majority of it? I'll, I'll post your- uh, That'll be enough to get, people, to get people going. That's a lot of stuff there. There's, there's a, a lot, lot of information there. We like to be thorough here in Nova Scotia. So, um, yes, thorough you are. 
great. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Kaplan. It was a real pleasure speaking with you and uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Brett, thank you for having me on the show. It's a complete pleasure. And I want to also support the work you're doing because we need practitioners like you out there. Uh, and the natural paths are so much more open to this stuff than unfortunately many of my colleagues. Uh, and that makes you guys really important on the forefront of medicine and what's going on here. So thank you for your work. Thank you for those words. And uh, thank you so much to everyone who attended or, uh, well, who was listening to this uh, podcast episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. I uh, hope it was an educational uh, experience for you. And please stay tuned for the next episode. Take care, everyone.